Friends, I want to open this morning with a story. And I quote, Sin and being saved from it were the furthest things from his mind that hot night during revival when he seated himself midway down the church next to Jojo Peabody, the only other boy his age in the congregation. The preacher that night was named Mr. Lawson. He was tall and bony thin, with grizzled gray hair, steel-rimmed glasses, and a steel brace that held him ramrod straight. His dentures were too big for his face, causing sunken cheeks and spraying sibilance. But he was filled with the fervor of evangelism. He could yell and shout and whisper and weep and stomp and his feet and wave his arms, and he could do that all with the best of them. He was a Baptist to the bone, a consummate actor, and a shrewd judge of human nature. The text this night was from the New Testament. The boy noted that here was another one getting all excited over dives and Lazarus. And as the preacher enlarged and elaborated on his theme and enriched it with endless illustrations of people dying just before they were saved, the boy drifted. He dreamed that he was dying. The boy actually felt that he was dying. And just then the preacher thumped the pulpit, stamped the wooden floor, and bellowed that this young man had wanted to make a commitment to the Lord but was killed in an automobile. On his way home, his soul was lost, his life wasted, because he had not professed Jesus Christ as his Lord and Savior. And if there be any in the house who have heard the call but are trembling on the brink, while we sing the closing hymn, won't you come? Won't you come before it's too late? The piano whined and thumped. Cud and Tom stood to lead the singing, watch fob hanging from the precipice of his pendulous belly, chin tucked into fat neck, Mouth opened wide in solemn slowness. Tomorrow's sun may never rise to greet thy long-deluded sight. Poor sinner, harden not your heart. Be saved, oh, tonight. Oh, why not tonight? Not tonight. Da-da-da-da-da. Okay, the song keeps going. Heart pumping audibly, quivering now with terror, soaking wet with sweat, the boy faced his own mortality for the first time. Fear propelled him from the bench down the aisle to grasp the outstretched hand of the surprised preacher. The boy was saved, saved from hell, saved from falling when he dreamed, saved from burning in eternal flames. He was saved, saved, saved. But Jesus never crossed his mind. Having impulsively now gotten himself into the center of church consciousness, this quagmire of embarrassment, this fresh nightmare state, he heard the murmurs of his elders. Oh, how sweet. So precious, oh, so young. He heard the tremulous query of his mother, son, do you know what you're doing? But there was no way to renege. At the age of 10, he embraced religious hypocrisy. Guiltily, he never let his mother know he had joined the church under the simple stimulus of God's gonna get you, that he revered Jehovah, but didn't feel Jesus was real. And he hadn't the foggiest notion of what they were talking about when they discoursed on the Holy Ghost. But Jojo, loyal to the end, joined the church that following night, and they were baptized on Sunday afternoon in Toller's Pond. The heavens opened not, and no dove descended, nor did lightning strike. Friends, so reads the account of Feral Sams, a man who grew up in the heart of mid-20th century Fayetteville, but Fayetteville, Georgia. This is rural Georgia's entertaining as his account is, and you can just keep going, he's an entertaining, he's a good writer. Sadly, that's a true story. That's actually his own story. 
Here was a man who was educated in Baptist schools, a man who knew Southern Baptist churches all too well, and sadly, his own conversion story that I just read, well, that's all too common. Millions have, they've walked an aisle, they've raised a hand, prayed a prayer. They themselves think they have sealed the deal with Jesus, and yet they never go to church, never read the Bible, live lives utterly indistinguishable from the world about them. Friend, is that conversion? Is that the hope that we hold out to people in the gospel? Is that story all the Bible has to offer? Friends, these are the kind of things I want us to be thinking about again this morning as we return to this second week in a sort of two-week topical series on the true meaning of conversion. And just I want to stop here, and if you want to think more about what we talked about last week or what we'll think about this week, just commend two books to you. The first, this excellent book, Conversion, How God Creates a People by Michael Lawrence. You can find this on the bookstall. Also, Am I Really a Christian by Mike McKinley that even as a Ford from Kirk Cameron, that's of interest to you. These could be helpful as you just answer some of these questions in your own life. Again, you can find them on the bookstall. Now, last week we thought about the root of conversion. And in short, we saw that conversion is how God unites those who are spiritually dead into a living relationship with him. And we noted it's first God's work. So it begins with regeneration, the need for the new birth. We looked at John 3, where where God renews us, breathing new life into us, exchanging our cold and stony hearts for, for hearts of flesh, Ezekiel 36. And so just as we ourselves are passive in our own physical birth, so we are in our spiritual birth. John says the children of God are those who are born, quote, not of blood, nor the will of the flesh, nor the will of man, but born of God, John 1.13. Right, regeneration, it's God's work. And that's the work that lies at the root of conversion. And the means, we thought about, that which God brings this radical supernatural change, it's not through clever marketing gimmicks, it's not through manipulation, it's not a byproduct of the right staging and lights. No, it's through God's word, as God gives his word to his people and his Holy Spirit accompanies that word and brings change to them. And of course, the results of this regenerating work, the the root of conversion, that's what we want to be thinking about this morning. We want to be thinking about the fruit of conversion. Because one of the things we see as we come to the Bible is is we are not passive in salvation. No, when, when we hear the gospel message, we are all, every one of us, called to respond to it. There is a decision that is placed before us when we hear the gospel message. And what's the the Bible's, what's the decision the Bible puts before us? What's that summons the Bible gives as we hear the gospel? I think it's this that often trips us up and has tripped up many evangelicals over the last 200 years. Because for many, when we think of the Bible summons, what do we think we're supposed to do? Well, perhaps we think we're to pray a prayer. So we'll say something like, pray this prayer after me, and we maybe invite others to recite the sinner's prayer. I think so ingrained is this practice in us that if someone says, have you prayed the prayer, if we know our Bibles well, we might think they're talking about the Lord's prayer. But when someone says, have you prayed the prayer, we all know they don't mean the Lord's prayer, they mean the sinner's prayer. So much so that praying the prayer has become almost like a Protestant rite of passage, You know, maybe we ask them instead to walk an aisle, raise a hand. Maybe we say, fill out a card. 
Right? That's often how we invite people to respond to the gospel. But friends, is this how Jesus calls us to respond to the gospel? Is this the summons he makes of us? Well, friends, as we begin this morning, I want us to think of that summons. If you've got a Bible, turn with me to Mark chapter 1. Mark chapter 1. We're going to be look at verse 14. If you don't happen to have a Bible, you can pull out one of those red seatback Bibles. You can find Mark 1.14 on page 836. Page 836. So think about the summons we often call people to, and yet the summons that Jesus makes of us, looking at Mark 1, verse 14, the first time Jesus opens his mouth in the gospel of Mark, he says, the time is fulfilled... Verse 114, the time is fulfilled, the kingdom of God is at hand, and now what's their response to be? Jesus says, repent and believe in the gospel. Not come forward, not sign here, not pray this, but he says, repent and believe. So as we think this morning about the fruit of conversion, let's think for a minute about this response Jesus calls us to, and just notice it's twofold. And we're going to continue that pattern we started last week of sort of this, not that. Right, so this, not that. So part one of our response, if you like, think of it as part, sort of point one A. Repentance, not refinement. This is the response Jesus calls us to first. Repentance, not refinement. So, when Jesus sends out the 12 apostles in Mark 6, how did they call people to respond? Well, the same way Jesus did here in Mark 1. We read in Mark, 6, uh, Mark chapter 6, verse 12, they, the apostles, went out and proclaimed that people should repent. They should repent. When Peter preaches his first sermon in Acts chapter 2, and right there in Acts 2, revival breaks out. We hear and read that the people in Acts 2, they're cut to the heart. They come, in other words, under the conviction of the Holy Spirit, so much so that they look to Peter, they say, what must we do to be saved? What shall we do, they say in Acts 2.39. And notice when, when they ask that question of Peter, what shall we do? Peter doesn't say, okay, excellent, cue the music, let's get it going, now everyone where you are, bow, close your eyes, and repeat this after me. That's not what Peter says in Acts 2. He says, Acts 2, 38, he says, repent. Repent is what Peter says. When Paul's on trial, he's explaining his preaching, his preaching ministry throughout all the Mediterranean. They're asking him what marked his ministry. He's giving a defense of it. He says, Acts 26, 20, I declared first to those in Damascus, then in Jerusalem, throughout all the region of Judea, and also to the Gentiles, that they should repent and turn to God. Notice there how, how Paul equates repentance with turning. Did you catch the same thing in what Terry read from 1 Thessalonians 1 just a few minutes ago? If you would, just turn your Bibles there to 1 Thessalonians 1, page 986, if you have one of those red seatback Bibles. 1 Thessalonians chapter 1. Paul opens and he notes how he's very thankful for them. Verse 4. We know, brothers, loved by God. Why is he thankful? Because he has chosen you. Because our gospel came to you not only in word, but also in power and in the Holy Spirit and with full conviction. So right there, notice how Paul grounds their faith. The Thessalonians' faith. 
He grounds it in God's prior work of loving them and choosing them and renewing them through the Holy Spirit. Right? As we saw even last week, conversion is God's work before it's our work. And yet what marked their response? Look down, 1 Thessalonians 1 verse 9. For they themselves report to us the kind of reception we had among you, how you turned to God from idols to serve the living and true God. You catch that again. They turned. They repented. Friends, that's what repentance is. It's, it's turning. It's, it's doing a U-turn, a complete 180 from self-rule to God's rule, right? from idol worship to God worship, which is why the Bible says we must repent of our lives, not simply work to refine our lives. When it comes to Jesus, nothing is off limits. Repentance is is not sort of making promises to God with a few fingers, you know, crossed behind our backs. Like we're going to keep a few things to ourselves. No, to receive Christ's life, the Bible is so clear, Jesus the apostles, to receive Christ's life, we have to relinquish our own. Not just partially, but fully give it all over to him. Right, so repentance is not saying, you know, God, let's make a little deal here. I'll, I'll stop hooking up. I'm going to back off all that excessive drinking at Maxine's. I'm going to back off that, right? Some of the smoking stuff I do, right? Some of the porn, like, I'll, I'll, I'll put that away too. You know, I'll clean up my language even. I'll be more respectful to my parents. I'll be kind to my neighbors. I'll be even more generous with my wealth. Now, if someone said that to us, we might think, well, that's, that's quite impressive. That's, that's quite a list, Someone like that, we might say, hey, share a testimony of grace on Sunday night. But Jesus doesn't say that. How do I know? Because someone tried that with Jesus. You know the story of the rich young ruler? He tried that very thing with Jesus. He says, all these things, Jesus, I've done them from my youth, he says. From my youth, Right, he was feeling pretty good about himself. He had refined his life quite well. And I think we'd be feeling pretty good about ourselves too. But what does Jesus say? Jesus says to him, effectively, give it all to Potter's house and then you can come follow me. And of course, what do we read? We read that the man became very sad because right, he was filthy rich. Friend, even if we surrender 99% but hold back 1%, the Bible says that's actually not genuine repentance because you're still deciding the 1% you won't give up. Which means at the end of the day, you are still in charge. You are still in charge. And Jesus will either be Lord of your entire life, or he won't be in your life. There's no middle ground, right? Repentance is 100% of your trust and your obedience for 100% of his righteousness. That's the only deal Jesus offers us. Which is why repentance isn't the same simply as refinement. It's not just cleaning up our acts a bit. It's not the same as just, you know, getting some religion, as if that's going to help us. Right, the Pharisees, we thought about them last week. Pharisees had lots of religion. But at the end of the day, the Pharisees came to Jesus on their terms, not on Jesus' terms. And they were plenty religious, and yet Jesus still exposed how they were also plenty idolatrous. Friends, repentance isn't the same thing as remorse. Paul writes in 2 Corinthians 7, verse 8, 
As it is, I rejoice, not because you were grieved, he's referring to his previous letter, but because you were grieved into repenting. For you felt a godly grief, so that you suffered no loss through us. For godly grief produces a repentance that leads to salvation without regret. Whereas worldly grief produces death. You see, we can feel remorse, this kind of worldly grief. We can feel remorse. We can feel great sorrow over our sin, and we cannot truly repent of our sin. But friends, true Christians, they don't defend their sin. They take God's side against their sin. They don't make excuses for it. They ask for forgiveness from it. They repent, not perfectly, but persistently they do. But that's not all Jesus calls us to. So that was sort of point 1A, if you will, repentance. But he also calls us, secondly, to faith, not feeling. He calls us, secondly, to faith, not feeling. Now, what is this faith? You know, we noted going through the Gospel of Mark earlier this last year that faith consists of sort of three components. Knowledge of certain facts. Like I know some people claim Jesus is the Son of God. But it's more than just knowledge, it's also assent. Like, I believe that Jesus is the Son of God. And yet it's more than mere knowledge and assent, it's also trust. Namely, I believe Jesus is the Son of God and I will live out that belief because I know he is. And I've entrusted myself to him as the Son of God. In this sense, faith is belief in action. So have you ever noticed, if you read through Hebrews 11, you know, that faith hall of fame... How faith is identified with action. Abel offered, that's the action. Abel offered the acceptable sacrifice. Noah constructed the ark. Abraham left his home. Moses chose to be mistreated. Rahab welcomed the spies. Right? Faith in action. That's genuine faith. So to put it another way, faith is the hand that would lay hold to the finished work of Christ, to all the promises of God in Christ, and lay hold of those promises. And yet so often when we talk about biblical faith, we talk about our faith as if it's our faith that saves us. And when we do that, what happens, it means our own sincerity in that moment becomes the primary concern. So I noted this even last week in life groups on Sunday night. It's one of the reasons why I like to go and visit, because I get to hear how you all are thinking about the sermons, and one of the things that came up, not with just one of you, but a few of you, is is how you're struggling to know, like, did I truly believe? Did I really believe? You know, I hadn't wept deep rivers of tears, so maybe I hadn't truly believed. And so you'd try to work up some additional emotion and maybe shed a tear and think, okay, like that maybe is the the sign that I've genuinely believed. And then, well, now that I've done that, I guess I have to go through the, the whole process again. And so... And so you think about, well, I guess i got to pray the sort of prayer for the 30th time, and you repeat the formula, and you hope, like, this time it's going to really count. Friends, all that does, though, is breed a culture of, of insecurity, breed a culture of anxiety. You know, in talking with you, doing many of your membership interviews, I know some of you have walked enough aisles to complete a marathon. 
You know, J.D. Greer, who's president of the SBC, he noted in his own life that he's prayed the prayer in just about every denomination growing up just to be safe. He said he got baptized so many times in his home church, they gave him his own baptismal locker. Which is pretty funny if it weren't so tragic, right? Friends, the kind of faith that Christ calls us to, it's not a feeling that, that God evaluates on the basis of its intensity. It's not a formula. What does the Bible say? John 3.36, he who believes in the Son has everlasting life. Acts 16.30, believe on the Lord Jesus and you will be saved. Romans 4.5, to him who does not work but believes on him who justifies the ungodly, his faith is accounted as righteousness. Romans 10, 9 and 10. If you confess with your mouth, Jesus is Lord, and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you will be saved. All right, so not once does the Bible say, have faith in your faith, have faith in your feelings, have faith in some formula you've prayed. It says, our faith is only as good as its object. And is that object Jesus? That's what matters. That's what matters. And that's what saves. The question isn't, did you truly believe? The question is, question is in whom? In whom did you believe? That's the question we have to be asking. So when it comes to the Bible summons, the Bible doesn't say to call us to sort of ask Jesus into our hearts or to or to give your heart to Jesus, or to pray this prayer, or so many other things that we, we exchange for repentance and belief. Friend, instead of going through all of those motions, the Bible would say, start resting and start trusting in the life and the death and the resurrection of Jesus Christ, because that's where faith begins. And that's the beautiful thing, one of which, is if you have that testimony of JDs, of getting, you know, having your own baptismal locker, goodness, or whatever it might be, the wonderful thing, if you have testimonies like that, you know, maybe you've prayed the prayer a million times, and you're like, okay, does this mean it's all for naught? God is not snobby. He's not snobby about the ways in which he brings his children to life. He regularly uses imperfect means. So you may have prayed the prayer in every language that you know. You may have walked the aisle in every church you've ever joined, so long as you have truly repented and believed upon Christ alone this morning, you don't need to fret. That's what it means to be a follower of Jesus Christ, to have repented and believed. Now, friend, if you haven't done that, if you've come recognizing you've actually never truly given yourself over to Christ, not 100%, you've never really believed upon him as the object of your trust and hope and affections, friends, what's keeping you from doing that? Why wouldn't you do that today? There's only one person who's ever lived without sinning. Friend, it's not you. It's certainly not me. Which means every single one of us, due to our sin, we are all under a death sentence. But the wonderful news is that Jesus did live perfectly. He did die sacrificially so that all those who would genuinely repent of their sins, i.e. turn from it, run away from it, right? Not embrace ourselves, like run from ourselves, for those who would do that and place their faith in Jesus Christ, they can be saved. You can be saved. You can be delivered from all that anxiety, that, that nagging doubt of whether or not you and God are good. 
Friend, don't make the wager that it's good enough. Your life is sufficiently good enough that when you stand before the Lord, he will be largely impressed. Friends, that's not a wager any one of us in this room will ever win apart from Jesus, which is why we must repent and believe. And friends, when it comes to the fruits of conversion, that is the basic command. That is, that is the charge that the Bible gives to us. And it's that charge that's thus consumed much of the time this morning. But I want us to think, before we, before we close, I want us to think of additional fruits. I want us to think for some, some additional minutes about some of the implications of conversion. Implications on our own individual lives, implications on our corporate lives together as a church. So implication number one. Following Jesus is costly, not convenient. Following Jesus is costly, not convenient. Now I say this because sometimes we present the gospel like this. You know, Jesus is the one who can bring healing to your brokenness. Or meaning to your existence. Or fulfillment and purpose to all the ways in which you struggle in life. And thus the impression we leave is that Jesus exists to make our lives better, to improve them. And thus following Jesus because something rather attractive, convenient, advantageous even. And friends, it's not so much that those statements are false. It's just that they're not exactly true either. For that kind of gospel actually says nothing about the cost of following Jesus. The cost is one of those things that we know, but we kind of leave that for the fine print. It's like those commercials on TV, you know, some of those drug commercials that I see on TV. Uh, you know, whatever your ailment, this, this commercial and this drug, they can fix it. And so you watch the guy who's in obvious pain and he takes the drug and the next thing you know, he's like skipping down the beach, he's breakdancing at his granddaughter's wedding, you know, whatever it might be. And you're watching it and everyone's happy and you're thinking, man, I don't know what this ailment is, but maybe I need this drug. Maybe I should be taking this thing. Everyone looks so happy and fulfilled. You know when you get near the end of the commercial and that audio goes to like double speed and the voice says, you know, taking such and such, you know, it's been known to cause indigestion, hair loss, heart palpitations, nausea, sleeplessness, migraines, paralysis, and occasional death. (laughs) And you're like, wait, wait, time out. Like, that's the cost of the drug? I'm not sure I want to take that drug anymore. Well, friends, Jesus didn't leave the cost for the fine print. He didn't throw it in at the end. He's very clear to us in the Gospels. The one who loves a father or mother more than me is not worthy of me. The one who loves a son or daughter more than me is not worthy of me. And whoever doesn't take up his cross and follow me is not worthy of me. Matthew 10, 37 and 38. Anyone, he says, who does not bear his own cross and come after me Cannot be my disciple, Luke 14, 27. You know, what does Paul say in Romans 8? This, this chapter we love, it's got this great chain of salvation. God works all things for good of those who love him, right? We know that. We know that chapter. How do we know that we're children and heirs, heirs of God and fellow heirs with Christ? Paul says, provided we suffer with him in order that we might also be glorified with him. Friends, in conversion, the Bible calls us, Jesus, the apostle, they call us to count the cost, right? Christ died so that we would, what, no longer live for ourselves, 2 Corinthians 5.15. It's the one who loses his life for my sake and for the gospel, Jesus says, who finds his life. 
you know, if it's about the benefits that come, how do we understand the lives of men like Adoniram Judson? He gave himself to the mission field, lost his wife, lost many of his own kids. We think of a guy like William Wilberforce, who had a very promising political career, perhaps even could have been sort of a the prime minister there in England, and yet he gave that up so he himself could fight the slave trade. Or David Brainerd, promising student who wants to take the gospel to some of the Native American Indians and develops tuberculosis and dies at a young age. Or Borden of Yale, we thought about him, oh, it was a year or so ago, a guy in the early 20th century who had an entire family empire that was his to inherit, and he walked away from it to try to take the gospel overseas, and before he even got on the field, he died. Friends, how do we understand stories like that? How can we make sense of their lives if Christ is only to be followed for his benefits? You know, Dietrich Bonhoeffer would famously write, when Christ calls a man, he bids him come and die. Friends, at a minimum, we die to ourselves. Sometimes the death that we are called to is the death of our own very lives. Now, following Christ is absolutely worth it. Talk to any genuine Christian in this room. They will tell you it is absolutely worth it. But it's not convenient because carrying a cross is not convenient. Loving unlovely people is not convenient. Giving of your time and money for others is not convenient. Leaving vacation early so that you can gather with the saints on Sunday, that's not convenient. Telling your kids they can't sign up for that particular sporting activity because it's on Sunday, that's not convenient. Uprooting where you live, thinking about how you do relationships, building transparency into your life, being forgiving, slow to anger, none of those things are convenient. But that's what it means to be a Christian. If you are looking for comfort and convenience, Jesus says, I'm sorry, you signed up for the wrong religion. Second implication. Conversion is about transformation, not a transaction. Conversion is about transformation, not a transaction. Now, according to some research by George Barna, a polling firm I read back in 2011, according to Barna, 50% of Americans have prayed the prayer. That seemed rather high to me, right? I I guess I'll trust, largely I'll trust the polling, but 50%. So they've been assured their eternity with God is a settled deal. And thus there's a whole generation of people who are convinced they don't need Jesus because they already have him. And yet they don't go to church. They don't care much for spiritual things. They don't share the gospel with others they wouldn't even know exactly what to share if they had an opportunity to share with others. But they know they've prayed the prayer. To quote the report, for a one-time admission of imperfection and weakness, they received in return permanent peace with God. The result is that millions of boomers who said the prayer and asked for forgiveness went on with their life with virtually nothing changed. They saw it as a deal in which they could exploit God to get what they wanted without really giving up anything of consequence. Friends, that's a remarkably astute, right, observation from a polling firm. Quite theological reflection. And tragically, I think they're right. I think they're right. Because for some of these conversion, it isn't about a living relationship with Jesus Christ because we've tended to treat it like a box that you check on a decision card. But conversion is not a one-time event. 
It's not like life insurance. You know, you, you pay the premium and then you walk away and you live life as you please, but you're a bit more, uh, a, a bit of additional peace of mind as a result of paying that insurance. And friends, God never starts the process of salvation in anyone and then fails to finish it. He who began a good work in you will carry it unto completion, we read in Philippians 1. So all that we've been talking about, this regeneration and conversion, all the way to our glorification, it's a package deal. Conversion, in that sense, isn't the finishing line, as we've said of our spiritual lives. Conversion is actually the starting point. It's the starting line. Now, a very well-known American evangelist of the past uh, 20th century, he was once asked about all of his quote-unquote converts, the millions that have gotten up out of their seats and come down to embrace Christ. And the question was put, you know what, what happens to all those people? What happens to all those people? And the evangelist admitted, really without, without batting an eye, that as much as half, to them, half of them in a few months won't be following Christ. They won't be following Christ. That's what they found out from their own analysis. And friends, if that is the fruit of the gospel we preach we have to stop and ask ourselves, are we preaching the gospel? Are we preaching the gospel? Conversion isn't about a one-time transaction. It is about a lifetime of transformation. Therefore, we shouldn't speak of conversion as we've just completed some ritual, but conversion is the beginning of a living relationship with Jesus as our Lord. So when the gospel writer John talks about believing it's interesting, he always talks about believing in the present tense, not the past tense, not something we had accomplished. Belief is not something we completed, it's something we've commenced, exists still present tense. And that belief, John says, is to be born out in holy living. So like Israel, our lives are to be distinct, we're to be set apart from the world. And part of us being set apart is that clarion call to conversion on behalf of the nations. The nations are to look and to see something distinct, and that's to be attractive. That's to cause them to stop and pause and ask questions. What's different about these people? It's an invitation. And yet so many of our lives validate the world when they are supposed to contradict the world. You know, so often we can become enamored with our own pursuit of relevance, and we forget God calls us to be righteous. Relevance is great, but righteous is a non-negotiable. The Bible couldn't be clearer. You will know them by their fruits. You know the parable of the soils? There's the seed planted on rocky ground that sprouts up quickly, only then to wither under the because it doesn't have roots, it withers under the searing sun, under trial and persecution, it doesn't make it. Or the seed that sprouts up only to be choked by all the cares and the concerns of the world. You know, Charles Spurgeon once wrote, they say it's wicked to doubt it, referring to conversion. It's wicked to doubt it, their conversion. But they have little to warrant it. If there be no vital change, no inward godliness, if there be no love to God, no prayer, no work of the Holy Spirit, then thy saying, I am saved, is but thine own assertion, and it may delude, but it will not deliver. Friends, many of the, the pundits around can look at the worldliness of our own churches and conclude that being born again doesn't make a difference. But we should come to the opposite conclusion, namely that many of those churchgoers aren't born again. Friends, this is why 
corrective church discipline matters because it seeks to make clear what is genuine saving faith and what is spurious faith. Discipline does not mean that someone is going to hell, but it is saying that we don't have assurance they're going to heaven. Usually because of some serious and demonstrable and most important unrepentant sin, a sin they refuse to let go of, refuse to turn away from, despite all the admonitions and warnings, they are stubborn in having their sin. But it also might be because someone has simply cut themselves off from the church. The church no longer has any knowledge of their lives. You know, church discipline means that a church is no longer willing to console itself. They're no longer willing to console the erring Christian. They're no longer willing to tell the world that all is okay under some mistaken notion that one time in the distant past they did something and they had some faith. If God is not consoled by such past professions, we shouldn't be consoled either. Friends, that's why the elders care so much about absent on attending list. Because on that list you have people who say they're willing to go to the grave for Christ, but they're not willing to simply gather here with Christ's people. They say heaven is their destination, and we as a church have affirmed it. And yet they're entirely disinterested in the earthly dress rehearsal. They say they're followers of Christ, yet they refuse to follow him in the simple, most basic institution he has left us to help us in our own discipling relationships, and that's the local church. And you see, the danger is that they have substituted a way of life and replaced that way of life with mere words. And salvation, the Bible says, is not a one-time transaction. It is a lifetime course correction. But a third and final implication of conversion. We're to be assured, not anxious. Assured, not anxious. You know, I read that Joan of Arc was once asked if she was in the grace of God. You know what she said? She said, if I'm not, may God put me there If I am, may God keep me in it. Which is a very humble response, but we have to also admit it's not a particularly encouraging response. Not very comforting. Like, can we be any more certain that, well, if I'm not, I pray that I am, and if I am, I pray I stay there. Can we be any more confident, any more certain? You know, again, for that, many will look back to some past faith. They'll take assurance on the basis of something they did. But just note, the Bible never tells us to have assurance of something that happened in the past. It tells us to look to two places for assurance. First place it points us to. We can be assured of our salvation because it hinges on Christ's faithfulness and not our own. That's the first place we look every time. If Christ is the object of our trust, then we can have assurance of our own salvation. If it's truly in him, We're not placing it in anything else, genuinely in him. If our faith rests on his objective work on the cross, not our wavering subjective experience of it, we can be assured of our salvation. That's where where the gospels tell us to look. And yet, we're also encouraged to look, secondly, not to past faith, but we are to take further assurance from our present faith, from our present faith. So Paul in 2 Corinthians 13, 5, examine yourselves to see whether you're in the faith. 2 Peter 1, make your calling and election sure. All over 1 John, the one who is in Christ is what? The one who keeps Christ's commands. Now, if 
we have a notion of once saved, always saved, and that's the end of it, it's really hard to understand these verses. Again, that's not a false statement. It's just not an entirely true statement. There's more to the story. Friends, self-examination of your life, God intends you for to do that. And he doesn't want you to do that because he wants you to doubt his work. He recognizes all of us can be deceived. He doesn't want us to doubt, but he does recognize we can be deceived. Though conversion happens in a moment. The Bible says you don't need to know when that moment was. Now, knowing when you first believed, you know, that maybe, maybe that's helpful. But knowing that you currently believe, that's what the Bible says is essential. Knowing when you came to belief sometime in the past, that may be helpful. Knowing that you currently believe, that's what's essential. You know, to paraphrase uh, John Piper, he says, I know I'm alive not because I can point back to a birth certificate. I know I'm alive because I'm breathing. Seems quite self-evident to me. And friend, this kind of assurance often takes time. You know, it's why we want to be careful with baptism. Because baptism isn't simply one's public profession of faith. Recognize baptism is also something else. It's also the church's public declaration of that person's faith. In baptism, we as a church, we are placing on them Christ's seal of approval. And thus, the true evidence of faith is going to be trust. And trust often needs some time. Trust often needs opportunity to demonstrate itself. We can't always tell in the moment, especially the younger someone is. It's also why church membership is important. You know, because our membership in a church functions a lot like an assurance of salvation cooperative. Some of us are going to be too easy on ourselves. Right? We assume all is well with us. We assume our lives are in pretty good order. We don't recognize the dashboard of our cars. Every light is blinking. Every warning is on. Other people can see it. But we're happily driving along. And we need those other people to look at us and lovingly say, hey, Things aren't well. We need to sort of pull off here. We need to take stock. We need to fix some things. We need to get back on the path of life. We need those people in our lives to help keep us on the path. And yet some of us are far too hard on ourselves. Right? We need a church family like this to point out evidences of grace in our lives, to encourage us in our own struggles, to tell us, listen, the very fact you're struggling, the very fact you're fighting, that's a sign, an indication that you're in Christ, you're in the faith. You know, church membership helps to, to warn the complacent. It helps to comfort those who are especially tender in their consciences. Friend, recognize that's why the Lord's Supper is important as we think about assurance. You know, we're about to take the Lord's Supper in just a moment. You know, how does the Bible say we can know who are the genuine Christians? Where do we look? Now, I was teaching the new member class on Wednesday night. You know, if, if we lived in a, in a government that sought to persecute every Christian what would that government want to have in their possession that would reveal who every Christian is? Well, friends, in the Bible, that list is, it's not just who's been baptized, because sadly we know some will walk away from the faith. It's who's at the table. Who takes the Lord's Supper together? Friends, if the Lord's Supper is functioning as the Bible intends it to function, your own presence and your own participation is meant to assure you of your presence and participation in Christ. Now, it's why, for example, if you haven't made a profession of faith, you ought not to take the Lord's Supper. If you haven't been baptized subsequent to that profession of faith, you ought not to take the Lord's Supper. 
If you're not a member of a church where someone has given testimony to your own confession, it's not wise to take the Lord's Supper. It's why we don't come forward, you know, at the Lord's Supper. And, and we don't come forward as if, like, it's a drive-through self-service. As if it's just something that we do between us and the Lord. Because that turns the meal into, like, a divine vending machine or something. And that's not what the Lord's Supper is. It's why we don't give it to families and dads to give to their children or small group leaders to give it to their participants. It's not a family ordinance. It's a church ordinance. And our participation in it together which is the huge concern of 1 Corinthians 11, the togetherness, singing together, confessing together, taking that supper together, that's part of how Christ means for you this morning to be assured that you too are in Christ. My friends, I embarked on this two-week topical study because I look around at the challenges that churches face, and I've talked too many of you, and I hear your own stories And I am convinced, as I said last week, that the greatest challenges before us, not not Calvinism, not secular culture, although that can be a challenge, it's not the courts. I said it's a faulty understanding of conversion. It messes everything else up. So to quote this book by Michael Lawrence, who, Lord willing, is going to be preaching here next spring, he says this. He says, you know, when our members treat regular attendance at church as optional, something to be balanced with sports leagues and vacation homes, when giving and attendance fall far short of membership numbers, when volunteers are hard to find unless it's a social event. The problem isn't with our evangelistic technique. It's not our poor leadership. It's not our uninteresting worship services. It's not our bad volunteer management. The problem is with our practice and theology of conversion. Friends, what I've wanted you to see is the glorious news of the gospel is that God can do what society says cannot happen, namely we can change. God can change us. He changes people. And in regeneration, he penetrates into the deepest recesses of our souls, and he opens up our closed hearts. He softens our obdurate hearts. He circumcises our uncircumcised hearts, and he makes that which is dead, and he makes it come to life. He breathes life into it. That's the root evidenced by fruit. By repentance, not merely remorse, not some kind of refinement. By genuine faith, right? Not a feeling, not a formula. It will be costly. It won't be convenient. It is also transformative. It's not just a one-time transaction. And that faith is meant to generate genuine assurance as we looked at the object, Jesus Christ. And it does not breed anxiety as we have the body of Christ to help us along the way. Friends, this is the change that genuine, true, biblical conversion promises us. This is the change that so many of you give evidence of. Friends, would others know? Would others know that by looking at your life, though? Ask yourself that question. Would others know of the promise of this change by looking at your life? Would they know the hope the gospel holds out to us by looking at our corporate life together? Friends, let's pray. Oh God, we pray, and we pray that we reflect hard on these things. Lord, we don't want to be those who simply take shots at practices of our friends in the faith. And yet at the same time, we want to examine what we do. We want to think well about it. We want to know what your word says is the response that you call us to. 
We want to know who does what. We want to feel the the demand to repent and to believe, the obligation to do it, recognizing at the same time there are evidences of your grace to us. And God, we want to be those who genuinely live changed lives because you have brought that change about in us. God, pray, help us to do that and help us to honor you by how how we do that together as a body in Christ. In Jesus' name, amen.